So uh, my dad, Ed Lucas, actually, he's, he's got a, a great story, and of course, it's my family story as well. When he was 12, he was hit by a baseball between the eyes on a famous day when Bobby Thompson hit this shot heard around the world that won the New York Giants the pennant in 1951, and he was so depressed that my grandmother wrote a letter saying, I have a 12-year-old boy who loves baseball, and you know he he's really depressed. He doesn't know what to do. And she wrote it to Leo DeRocher and a few other people in baseball, and they invited my father to sort of be their mascot. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy course, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Welcome to the Dreamer's Moment. We talk to people who are in the arena, chasing their dreams. Our guest for this episode is Chris Lucas. When I first read what Chris was doing in the Disney arena, I thought it was something unique, something that I would love to see. Chris does a one-man play as Walt Disney, and I was very intrigued to find out how he got there. Chris's story is one you have to hear to believe. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. And now uh, you are living exactly where? I'm just outside of New York City, actually, a little town in suburban New Jersey. So you're obviously uh, getting through the big snowstorm. Yes, yes, we just got over our little Halloween surprise. <laughs> Well, we like we had that back in 1991, and it was like 26 inches in a couple of days. So I I know what the experience is like. First off, when we di- uh, interview folks, we always like to ask what's your favorite Disney park, your favorite attraction, and if you have a favorite Disney restaurant. Oh, okay. Uh, I would say uh, by far my favorite Disney park is actually, and I'm going to call it MGM Studios. I know now it's Disney's Hollywood Studios, but uh, when that first opened, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s, I went down there, and I'm an actor by trade, so it kind of appealed to me because it, what amazed me was, you know, they partnered with another studio, so it wasn't just Disney history. There was a lot of on the great movie ride, you know, um, Casablanca and The Wizard of Oz and that, that montage they have at the end of it, so it, they kind of hooked me from the beginning, and now that they've added so many other things there that I'll always have a place in my heart for the Magic Kingdom and the other parks, but Hollywood Studios speaks to me as a performer. Oh, I, I like hearing that. You're the first person I've interviewed that has said Hollywood Studios. Some some have said multiple parks, but it's usually Magic Kingdom. People have yeah. that kind of fond affection for that. But, um, yeah, Hollywood Studios is great. I'm I'm so glad that they haven't done much with that great movie ride and kept it as it is. I'm I'm hoping that they do keep it. I took my I have two little boys and we went down there in 2009 for their first time, 
And they were, you know, they loved all the other rides. With that ride, they were so excited because not only is it, you know, a ride with all the great movies in it, but it's so participatory and you have the guy coming on and, you know, they, they take over the ride. It's really when it's unique for Disney to have something like that where, where there's a live actor just jumping on board and taking over the vehicle and, and and exposing people, like I said, to movies that aren't just as and some scary ones too, like Alien, isn't there all the different <laughs> scenes? So, yeah, and the Grauman's Theater, the fact that they recreated Grauman's Theater and Hollywood Boulevard and all those things. Uh, people always say, you know, if you could live at one time period and and you know, in one place in in the whole of history, I always say I'd love to live in 1920s Hollywood. And I know it's kind of romanticized, but because it's where Walt got his start and it's when all the studios were starting and it was all kind of brand new, it's, I'd love to be in on that. I know I think Hollywood Studios you know, they did a great job of recreating that, so it's as close as you can get without actually having been there. Yeah, when you see some of the, um, you know, I mean, Humphrey Bogart was later, but Buster Keaton, people people like that are, are uh, who's, the, who's the guy who's standing um, standing outside the door? Oh, he's got that very distinctive voice. He's trying to get into that back like a i can't remember the um not buster keaton but um oh harold lloyd or charlie chaplin all those guys no he was more of an edgy actor um sorry i just can't think that's okay yeah (laughs) and and you asked actually what my favorite ride and it's not actually the great movie ride it's the haunted mansion Mm -hmm. so it does take me back to the magic kingdom but as as a little boy I was called into the you know the macabre and Edgar Allan Poe and things like that. So the haunted mansion, and I, as soon as I got in, and I was hooked with that as well. And now my son, who's nine years old, that's his. He listens to the the soundtrack for the haunted mansion. He he does his own little ride around the house with our swivel chair. So, <laughs> oh, that's fun. How about and, a and, how? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, I was I was going to get to. I think you were going to ask about a restaurant. Yep. Kind of. It's, it's hard to say because there's so many good ones. Uh, and that's one of the great things about Disney. There, any kind of food you're looking for, but I, you know, I'd have to say, and I'm sure a lot of people have said it, Ohana in in the uh, in the Polynesian Resort. Mm-hmm. I spent my honeymoon there, and and I just love the Polynesian. It's kind of like again, a little bit taste of Hawaii overlooking the Magic Kingdom, and the food is just amazing. I, I I've never been to Hawaii. And I hope if I get there, the food is as good as it is in Ohio. But I know it's a mix of Polynesian and everything else. But I, I think that's my favorite one, just because of the location and the type of food they have there. It's it's really all in all, it's, it's really the best experience. And to make it the absolute best, we we got a um, table there when the Magic uh, Kingdom fireworks were going off. So they channel in the music, and and you got to see it right. Wow. Before. Yeah. I've never done, I've only done breakfast and lunch. I've never done the fireworks there. So. Oh, that's a lot of fun. And I agree. With that Ohana's is one of the ones that we always try to get to when we're down there. Um, well, and since you're uh an actor and into film, how about a favorite Disney movie? That's my favorite Disney movie actually is Robin Hood. And I know it's not a choice that a lot of people would make, but it was the first movie I ever saw. I was five years old, and, and it was the venue, so we went to Radio City Music Hall. My grandmother took us there, and I found out later that was the last movie they ever showed at Radio City Music Hall on a regular But They used to show movies all the time, but now they don't anymore, and that was the last one. And it wasn't just the movie. They brought out the Disney characters before to do a live show. The Rockettes came out, and then after the movie, they did a little live show as well. So it was a whole big spectacle all put together, and that was 1973, I think, November of 73. Oh, so wow. that, the minute I saw that, I fell in love with Disney. I fell in love with, you know, Robin Hood. And it's become a sense. It's hard finding those characters at the park or finding anything about Robin Hood. But that, that's my favorite movie. 
So many people, uh, you can tell, make this uh, uh, connection with Disney at their first Disney movie. It's I've hear I hear it often. I I just interviewed uh, somebody who, who it was Cinderella, and and for me it was um, I never remember if I saw Jungle Book or Mary Poppins first, but it was one of those two, and you know you just never forget that experience. Yeah, I took you know I recently took my kids to see The Lion King in the theaters, and you know Disney made a ton of money on it, more than they expected to make. And I said to somebody, you know, they used to release the movies every seven years back to theaters before DVDs came along and VHS. So I'm hoping now somebody in Disney is going to wake up and say, maybe we should put Pinocchio and Cinderella and so on. Because children, really, that should be their experience in a theater with 300 other people laughing, crying, you know, enjoying it rather than sitting at home in front of their TV, (laughs) especially for Disney movies. Words with Walt was an idea that came, actually, I was on a cruise with my wife a couple of years back, and I was talking to somebody, they were a younger, I'm, I'm now in my 40s, or I was in my 30s at the time, and I was talking to a young couple, had to be maybe 21 at the most, and they had just been to Disney World, and the, the guy remarked that he didn't realize there was a person, Walt Disney, he thought it was just a name, a corporate name that people, you know, other corporations come up with characters like Ronald McDonald and he thought Walt Disney was just a brand name, and he was stunned to learn that there was a person behind that. And I, I thought maybe it was this guy that, you know, he didn't know his history. And then I started to realize that there are children now, a whole generation of people that did not grow up like I did and my peers did watching Walt Disney on the television. He, he, was, he passed away actually a few years before I was born, but they were still running his shows on Sunday night on NBC, and you would still see Uncle Walt in there. But now there's at least two or three generations that are out there that, have no idea that he was a person so it became my mission at that point to do something some way to get it out there to let people know that this was a great man who certainly had flaws but had a great vision and overcame so much in his life so many obstacles to to what we think of as commonplace you know we can't imagine a world without disney parks and without disney movies but it all came from this one little boy who grew up there you know in the midwest and had a vision and lived it through so i i tried to figure out what I could do you know, with using my abilities, my talents, and then what I came up with was doing a one-person show about Walt Disney. So I, I, it took me about four years or so to write it, put it all together and research everything, but that's what Words with Walt is. I basically take the audience through Walt Disney's life as Walt. So, like, what, uh, what I, I, you may not want to say too much, but what kinds of things do you cover? Like, do you cover when when he first got into the film industry or do you get more focus on when he started Disneyland? What do you focus on? You know, it's a good question because it it differs for different audiences. I have a standard theatrical version of it, which is about an hour and a half, two hours with an intermission that covers the whole kit and caboodle, his entire life from beginning to end, try to get as much in as I can because there's a lot to cover. But I will have audiences ask me, I just did one for a retirement home where most of the people in there were in their 80s, 90s, 100s and all that. And they really wanted to hear about his involvement in the war years and things that they don't, people don't talk about too much about, you know, obscure facts about Disney films. But if I have children, they want to hear about how the characters came about, how Mickey was, you know, not, I don't want to say invented, but created Mickey, Minnie, the, the five, how Walt took all the great fairy tales and turned them into stories and the development of those. So it differs with different audiences. When I do the full show, the premise is it's, it's Walt's announcement of Florida Project X, when he was basically, his hand was forced. He had to come out and admit that he was building in Florida. And it was just before he died, there was a big press conference in Florida. 
and I set up the stage with a big table with a bunch of microphones on it, and it's got three placards, one that says Roy Disney, one that says Walt Disney, and the other one says Governor Burns of Florida. And I created the room to look exactly like it did back in that room, and the whole conceit is that Walt is coming in a little bit early to check the microphones and make sure everything's okay, and there are a few people in the crowd, so he starts talking to them about his life, just kind of reminiscing about different things and... We take it from there, and then it finishes up with him explaining how excited he is about this Florida project, which sadly he never got to see. But you know, he t- and it's funny because what I get to at the end is his vision of it never really came about. They turned it into more of a theme park. He wanted to build an entire city, and you know what Epcot eventually was turned into was not what he was talking about. And the audience, I see their reaction; they're stunned. They say, "Wow, that's not what we you know we go down to all the time in Florida." The fact that they. They told Walt, they said statistically, with the population around there, you, you'll be lucky if you get maybe 500,000 people a year to come and visit Disney World. And that usually gets a big laugh. <laughs> I think uh, another funny story along that line is, you know, when he showed his friend Art Linkletter uh, the land in California and said, you know, he's going to build this amusement park and Art scoffed at it and didn't you know Walt why would you do this and then after Disneyland he was excited to show Art the land in Florida and so he brought Art out and Art said all right Walt I get it but you already have an amusement park why would you want another one (laughs) yeah and and in fact actually I'm glad you bring up Walt uh, Art Linklater when I first started doing this project one of the things I wanted to do was contact people that either worked with Walt or knew him really well and a lot of people don't realize Art Linklater was Walt's best friend. Walt Disney wasn't really a guy that went to Hollywood parties or hung. He was more of a homebody. He loved leaving the studio and coming home and being with his family. And Art Linklater lived nearby. So the two of them were sort of similar personalities. And, of course, Linklater hosted the opening of Disneyland and, like you said, sort of had involvement with business transactions, but regretted to his dying day that he never did invest in the land around Disneyland. So I wrote him a letter. And he was kind enough to write me back, and he said in there, because I said, do you think this is something Mr. Disney would like? And he said, you sound a lot like me, and you sound a lot like Mr. Disney, where you're you know, just going ahead with your dream. And we started a friendship, and we communicated back and forth. He would send me a Christmas card. I would send him a birthday card, and he was a very, very nice guy you know, until he passed away a few years ago. So it was nice to get sort of that stamp of approval for somebody who was very close to Disney and and you know, kind of knew his mindset as, as best you could. I, I don't, you know, the, the listeners are going to range in age, but if, you, if you're if you not from back, you know, I'm, I'm even a little older than you, um, you, you can't imagine how big Art Linkletter was and how respectable he was in the in the television community. He had a way with kids, as you know, like no sure. one, like no one else. I mean, Walt, of course, uh, loved kids, but uh, Art Linkletter was, was the epitome of that, and so that's truly magical that uh, you well, made that. Yeah. I re- he held the record until Regis Philbin broke it a few years ago. He had more hours on television than any other person in history. He was early days of television. He was on you know, pretty much every channel and all the time. And uh, you know, kids say the darndest things, all those things. So he, he made a name for himself in television. And he and Walt together were smart enough to jump on that bandwagon early enough. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that is great. I mean, to make that connection, I can imagine meant a lot for you. Sure. You're also working on a book, and when I heard the title of it, right away, I didn't have to read a bit more. I got it. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, tell us about that. What, what's it called, and what's it about? 
it's called the Top 100 Top 10 of Disney, and it's going to be, you know, it's, it, the publication date has been pushed back a couple of times because we're still refining it and still adding lists and subtracting lists, but it's basically, it covers everything from the parks to the movies to the TV shows to the characters and, and Walt himself, and it's, you know, a top 10 list. We say the, the top 10 animated characters, and we, we break it down by animated villains, animated heroes, and we also break it down by era we call the classic era and the modern era. And for terms of definition, we use 1983 as the point because that's when the leadership at Disney sort of changed from the old guard. Uh, Disney himself, Walt Disney, died in the late 60s, but you still had his relatives, Ron Miller and a couple other people in there. When they all left and Eisner came in, that's the modern era. So we break it down. You know, We say characters from pre-1983 and characters post. We do obscure characters, obscure movies, underrated movies, the weirdest movies Disney ever made. There's a lot of fun lists in there, but I know when it comes out, there's going to be a lot of people, you know, writing in and saying, well, how could you forget this one? How could you omit that? It's hard, you know, it's hard to, to narrow it down to 10, but, you know, we, we, it's, it's myself and a few other people and a little research that we do, but basically I'm the, the ultimate guy that says yes or no, whether someone gets on the list. That was a great idea. Yeah, and you know, you know what's going to happen, don't you? You're you're going to get enough of those where you're going to create a second top 100. Of I, top I hope so. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. 100, we picked you know top 100, top 10 because it sounds like you know it's a nice round number. 100 a top 10 list, but we came up with it was about 150 to 200 lists that we could put in there. So, uh, what I did actually, I created a website. And we started putting a few lists on there that were geared towards different, like around Super Bowl Sunday, I put the top 10 Disney football connections that Disney, the company, had a lot to do with a couple of Super Bowl halftime shows. Uh, they, they produced the Pop Warner, Moochie of Pop Warner football with Kevin Corcoran was a TV show that was on for a little while. Ron Miller, Disney's son-in-law, played for the Los Angeles Rams. So there's a lot of connections here and there that we try to find the interesting and the unusual and post them on there. Wow, that sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it's actually it's DisneyTop10List.com. Lists, Disney, plural. Okay, so DisneyTop10List.com. Lists.com, right? And I haven't posted because I've been redoing the book and going over a couple of things in there. I haven't posted as much as I like recently, but you could there are a few on there from the Super Bowl and from the Oscars and St. Patrick's Day that are up there. So uh, my dad, Ed Lucas, actually, he's, he's got a, a great story, and of course, it's my family story as well. When he was 12, he was hit by a baseball between the eyes on a famous day when Bobby Thompson hit this shot heard around the world that won the New York Giants a pennant in 1951, and he was so depressed that my grandmother wrote a letter saying, I have a 12-year-old boy who loves baseball, and, you know, he he's really depressed, he doesn't know what to do, and she wrote it to Leo DeRocher and a few other people in baseball, and they invited my father to sort of be their mascot. And he went to games over there. He got to know a lot of the players. And one of the guys was Phil Rizzuto, who became my father's lifelong friend. And he helped put him through college. And when my father got out, he got him a job with the Yankees. So my father had this great story happen to him. And then he met my mother, who was from Ireland, came over. They got married. And they had my older brother and myself. And when I was two and my older brother was four, my mother, you know, for whatever reason, she just couldn't cope dealing with a blind husband and two little kids and all and she walked out and she left my father alone with two little boys so he had to struggle to raise two little kids 
which, you know, on your own, trying to raise them by yourself is difficult enough, but as a blind man trying to raise two little boys all by himself and get over to the ballparks and do all the things that he needed to do, you know, it was, it was incredibly tough. And then uh, things got even a little harder 10, 10 years later, correct? Yeah, actually, my, my mother, you know, had been out of the picture for a long time, and my father, my, he had a lot of help with my grandmother and my aunt and family members that would come over and make sure everything was okay. And, and I always say that, you know, people say to me, oh, it must have been tough with the blind dad. I did more with my father than some kids did with their fathers who had sight and were around. And all. So I, I never lacked for anything with him. But 10 years in, my mother came back and she had remarried, she had other children, and she decided that she was going to sue for custody. So she took my father to court and the first judge said, um, the kids are going to the mother, no questions asked, no trial or anything. And my father said, well, this is kind of unfair. We didn't have any testimonial. And the judge said, you have two choices. They can either, the two boys can go to their mother or we can break them up and they can go to foster homes and you won't see them again. So my father took, you know, like the wisdom of Solomon, you have to make that choice there. He let us go to my mother and then he went and fought through the system and it went all the way up to the New Jersey Supreme Court. And finally they had another trial and he had people come like, you know, Phil Rizzuto testified for him, Reggie Jackson, George Steinbrenner, Bob Hope, Richard Nixon, all these people that he had gotten to know through his life in baseball. And they all, to a man and to a woman, they all said that, you know, we've seen him with his kids. We know that he's capable of raising these children. And the outcome was my father was the first disabled person in the history of the United States of America to win custody back from a non-disabled spouse and one of the first males in the United States to win custody back from a female. Wow. Actually, back in, in 2006, my father remarried, wonderful woman, Allison, and they decided to get married at home plate in Yankee Stadium. And George Steinbrenner gave them the blessing. They were the only people ever married at home plate. So because of that, because it was so unique that, you know, this big wedding at Yankee Stadium just before it was going to be torn down, every media outlet was there. CNN covered it live. It was on ESPN, the Today Show, and all that. And because of that attention... It came to the attention of Hollywood, and Penny Marshall, who I had written a letter to about my dad prior to that, she flew out for the wedding, and she loved my dad's story so much. She invited. She said, I want you guys to come out to Hollywood, and we flew out to her house. We spent a little while out there, and she had the writers of movies like Splash, A League of Their Own. Uh, they sat down, and they wrote my father's story into a movie, and now you know, Hollywood moves slow. It's taken about five or six years, but they're finally putting the movie into production, So, and Stanley Tucci is signed on to play my father, and now they're talking to a couple of other people who play the roles of my mom and the nun that uh, took care of my father and all the different things. So it's, it's really exciting that, you know, his life story and my life story is going to be up there on the big screen. Wow. I mean, it's just, this is a movie everyone's going to want to see. It just, it just sounds yeah. incredible. It's uh, funny because everybody I ever tell the story to, even in passing encounter, they all say, that's a story we'd like to see. It's a story we'd like to read. So, it's, uh, you know, hopefully that translates to people going to see it when it comes out. They're shooting for next year, the fall, around this time, exactly one year from now, fall of 2012. Can, can I ask what company is producing it? Or? Well, actually, it's, it's funny. You know, you could have, Penny Marshall easily could have gone with a studio with one of the studios she works with, but the decision with not only her and her company was to do it independently because when you do a movie independently, you're allowed to call the shots and decide, you know, what goes in, what goes in. When you do a movie with a studio, you get a boardroom full of people that all have notes and they all decide, you know, 
add this, subtract that. So when you do it independently, that's why it takes six years because you have to go out and raise the money and get everything in place. But it gives you the creative freedom. So right now there is no studio test. But when the studios become involved, is once the movie's all done and finished, they compete to see who can get it out there and put their name on it and have it released under their banner. So obviously there's one studio that I'm rooting for, and I'm really <laughs> hoping that you know it comes. I won't mention the name, but you know it's got a little castle in the beginning with the logo and everything else. I think it would be the perfect story for Disney, but we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, hoping for that too. And uh, but if not, I mean, you even look at the success of like my Big Fat Greek Wedding, and and uh, oh, sure. yeah, so you definitely have. Uh, well, that's that's just a great story. I, I know everybody. And, and one of the things we were told was, you know, oh, nobody's going to go see a baseball movie because baseball movies usually don't do well. And and then Moneyball came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's been a tremendous hit. And of course, a league of their own, all these different movies. So. That, all that conventional wisdom has kind of gone out. So it's it's not just a sports movie; it's a human. The the closest one we can relate it to is is uh, the Blind Side, which came out recently. Which is you know it has some football in it, but it's more of a human interest story and overcoming obstacles and overcoming things like that. So yeah, we hope I, it does just as well. I've seen I've seen Moneyball twice already. I, I just loved it. Really, yeah. so actually, so have I. I took my dad. To, you know, it's hard when you take a blind person to the movies. You know, you have to kind of pick a day when it's not as crowded because you have to explain a lot and, and you know tell them what's happening on the screen there it's a, one of my funniest stories when I was a little boy my father used to take us to the movies my brother and I to the Disney double feature that they did every week at this classic theater in Jersey City and one of the weeks we went they were showing Fantasia and we walked in a little bit late and this is before and again your younger audience will re- get this but now you have the commercials you have the advertisements the coming attractions in the old days, they used to just play orchestral music, and then the movie would start. Yeah. So we walked into Fantasia, and about a half hour into the movie, my father leans over to me and says, Chris, when's the movie going to start? Because there was no doubt it was just all orchestral music. A little music. bit of, of your real dad in, in the end like they do with movies so that you get, a, get to see him. They will. From uh, the, the last scene as it's written in the script, is that uh, they go to my father. You know, it's all about the custody and takes place in the 1970s and 80s. But the last scene is they cut to Yankee Stadium and they show my father getting married at home plate. And from what I've been told, they're going to use the actual footage so that you see my real dad sitting, you know, standing at home plate. So. Oh, that's perfect. I remember in A Beautiful Mind that they, they actually showed that guy in the end. And uh, I thought that was a great touch. Yeah, I think it's nice for audiences to, you know, kind of see who the real... So you spent two hours watching a fictionalized version to see the actual person. And, and, and much sort of like what I said about Walt Disney, to make the audience realize that it is a real person. It's not a made-up story. It's not a name that somebody's... You know, if someone tried to write my father's movie as a script and it didn't really happen, if you were just making it up, you'd be thrown out of every studio. They'd say, come on, that couldn't really happen. All these things to one guy. So to have it happen in real life is just like Mr. Disney. If you try to write his story as a movie, people would say, oh, come on, nobody could, you know, have so much success and have so many things happen to him in one life. I know that your play has been kind of on hiatus for a little bit. Uh, do you plan on uh, starting that up again at some point? I do, actually. We are in, in 2012. I've been talking to a, a couple of theaters in New York City. And, you know, ideally the, the hope is to someday get it mounted as a Broadway production. Even if I'm not playing Walt Disney, you know, I, I'd love to have the ego to say I want to be able to stick with it there. But, you know... I'm not going to sell tickets right now, anyway, on my name on the marquee. So if they got another actor to play it, as long as I'm involved with the, you know, keeping it going. But 
for now, we're going to do it in smaller theaters in New York City, and then as you know, the the demand is out there. I will travel around the country and travel different places. I've done it regionally here in the Northeast, but I've never traveled across the country to do it. I'm so thinking- that's the hope is to get it. You know, and and it's it's the the way I designed the show was that it can be portable. It doesn't need a really a, basically you just need a table, a few chairs, and and. A couple of placards. That's you know, it's not an elaborately designed set. It's not recreating Disney World or anything on stage. It's just one man up there telling his life story, and hopefully, it's compelling for audiences. I I, I could see doing it, you know, right down there at Hollywood Studios with the uh, one's one man's dream um, area. Sure. Yeah. I, I you I, know, I, I'd love to. You know, that that's one of the things somebody said when I first started. You need to be in contact with the Disney lawyers and talk to them because you're doing his life story and it's tricky ground because the name Walt Disney is copyrighted as a company and as a but the person is a public person so you're legally allowed to do a show about a public person as long as I'm not using the copyrighted images and the music and everything else so hopefully one day you know the two of us will come together the corporation and my little show and we will be able to use it all together but right now one of their lawyers in New York said to me and it's sort of off the record the way they said it they said we're we're we we know about your show, but we don't know about your show. We know about it. We're looking the other way. And as long as you don't cross the line and start promoting it as you know you're affiliated with Disney or start using our imagery, which I never, you know, I, I it's all about Walt. It's not about. It. I mention the characters and they're in there, but it's not you know showing movies of Mickey or playing any of the music or any of that stuff. Right. I there are so many Disney blogs and efforts going on that I know they're very they have a good attitude towards it and if you're not just trying to garnish money off of their sales sure. I know yeah. that they're they're very good that way um, so so obviously a, a great dream for you would be to have this play continue and, and grow it and may, maybe bring it to different regions of the country yes that's that's definitely that's the big goal and the big dream is to get as I said in the beginning to get as many people as possible to realize that this was a wonderful man, a great man, and, and that he was a real person, and just let them know his story. Because from his story, a lot of people can take you know take it into their own lives and say, "Wow, I you know I faced so so." People don't realize how many times that Walt Disney went bankrupt and put his own you know stuff on the line. He put his money literally his money where his mouth was, and and pushed his dreams forward where other people would have just given up and walked away. And, you know, you could do that in your own life. You could, it's not all about, he was not about money. It was not about fame. It was not about success. It was about seeing your vision clearly and having it come true. Yeah. And if, if listeners are interested, there's a, a book that I read called How to Be Like Walt. And I that's think... It's funny you mentioned that. I was just going to, I didn't want to promote, you know, a book on here, but that's, that's, that's my Bible, that book. I love it. <laughs> that is a book that if you want to understand those challenges in a little bit more detail and I can't remember the author's name but he really uh, Pat Williams yeah because he owns the um, the Orlando Magic Orlando yeah, Magic the... right and and I... to understand you know just uh, and he, he he brings it into his own you know lessons and I, I I like those as well but yeah that gives you a great understanding of of the of Walt's life and the challenges and the ups and downs How can we uh, keep in touch with your book? Where would we where would we find this? Uh, oh, yep. you mentioned it before. Why don't you give us the, the website again for the, the book? Sure, it's called Disney Top Ten Lists Plural uh, dot com. Disney Top Ten Lists dot com. Okay, 
Are there and any... The, I'm sorry, go ahead. And the word, the website for the show is wordswithwalt.com. Okay. And is there any, you know, are you, is there a booking, you know, we can, con- people can contact you through the show and, and book if they want to do yes, that? Yes, there's actually a page on Words with Walt that they can go to and they can go through there and, and send me an email and it's a booking page and, you know, they, they fill out a little form and give me the pertinent information and then we go from there. Okay, wonderful. Chris, it was really great to have you on the show. We really look forward to your book, The Top 100. Thank you top 10 and we look uh, forward to seeing words with Walt hopefully coming to an area near us and uh, seeing this movie uh, so appreciate you being on the show thank you very much thank you for having me next time on the dreamers moment I still don't know if it's going to succeed. I'm one of those people who constantly thinks every booking is my last one. That's just my, my husband keeps trying to break me out of that mindset. But so, yes, was there ever a moment where you were sure this was going to succeed? No, I'm not even there yet. But it's, uh, it's going quite well in the sense that, for instance, this year went much better than last year, which went better than the previous year. So it's definitely building, and I can feel a sense now of people know me. I mean, I was actually walking down the street, and a woman looked at me, and she goes, you're Alina from the videos. So I feel like, you know, people are seeing me. So th- this year actually is the first one where I really feel it's taken on a life of its own. The Dreamer's Moment is part of the Life Podcast Network, a group of family-friendly podcasts bringing a positive message of hope and inspiration. Find us at lifepodcast.net.